disruption zone. Opportunity lives where the status quo dies. Talking to the greatest innovators, disruptors, and off-the-wall inventors, we can scrounge up. You laugh, you'll learn, you'll be inspired. Now, here are your hosts, Leland Conway and Cameron Mills. All right, the news lately has been all about Afghanistan and our uh, ridiculous debacle of a withdrawal there. Now, we should have gotten out of there, and we could have gotten out of there a long time ago, but we could have done it a lot better than we did it. And the way we did it was a disservice to all of our soldiers, the people of Afghanistan who did not want the Taliban, to our allies around the world, and it was an emboldening thing for our enemies around the world. Um, we're going to dive into this in kind of a deeper way, though. Um, Abigail Hall, it's the first time we've had her on, and I think we're going to hear from her a lot more in the future. She is terrific. Uh, she is an economics professor at Bellarmine, uh, but she has an enormous amount of academic research on foreign policy as well. She's written a book on the militarization of police called Tyranny Comes Home, The Domestic Fate of U.S. Militarism. And another uh, book called Manufacturing Militarism, U.S. Government Propaganda in the War on Terror. We talked to her about some of all of this, how it dovetails with the last 20 years. It is a fascinating conversation. You may or may not agree with everything that she uh, espouses, but you are going to be made to think in this conversation. Um, and we'll put a link up to uh, her. She, again, is an associate professor of economics at Bellarmine University in Louisville. Um, and she is also a senior uh, fellow at the Pegasus Institute. And as you know, I, I highly, highly respect uh, and I'm thankful for the Pegasus Institute. I really enjoyed this conversation, and we're definitely going to be exploring some other things with her in the future. So we'll consider this to be the first of at least three, possibly four episodes on uh, some of these dovetailing topics. So enjoy this. First, though, big thanks to our sponsor, Louisville Cabinets and Countertops, uh, for helping with this program. I've been a customer of theirs uh, for years, I loved them. Um, when we moved to Colorado, we had to sell our house in Kentucky. They had done our kitchen several years before. We enjoyed the heck out of our kitchen. And then I'm pretty sure that the beauty that was in our kitchen that they had made made our house sell in less than a day. It was a, it was a huge selling point. If you're thinking about remodeling your kitchen, now is the time, too, with like home equity interest rates really, really low. Right, Take some of that equity in your home. Make your house your dream house by uh, getting the perfect kitchen. Make that happen. Um, LouisvilleCabinetsAndCountertops.com. George, Kelly, Michelle, they're all standing by waiting to take your call and help you with your dream kitchen. If you're a do-it-yourselfer or a contractor, they also have cabinets in stock ready to go that are high quality and beautiful, many, many different styles. So check out their website, LouisvilleCabinetsAndCountertops.com. And now our conversation with Abby Hall uh, from Bellarmine University and the Pegasus Institute. Awesome. Abby, this is your first time on the podcast. Welcome. We're glad to have you. Ah, thank you for having me. Well, and since you're associated with the Pegasus Institute, which we love here at the uh, Disruption Zone, we should uh, take a couple minutes before we dive into our topic to get to know you a little bit. So uh, your background is in both economics and also foreign policy. But I got to know, dog person, cat person, which? Uh, both, to give the eternal non-answer. Yeah, uh, totally dodging. Both. Totally dodging. Uh, it is totally dodging, but yeah. it's a very genuine answer and right. that we, we do like both and we pet both. Okay, you have both. If one had to go, which is it? Dog oh, or cat? Oh, God. They, 
they can't they can't go (laughs) (laughs) i'm I'm trying to corner you here and you're not letting me do it (laughs) no not not gonna happen so my wife has a cat i don't uh i mean we have we have two dogs so what you're telling me is that your wife has a cat, therefore you have a cat. Right. Well, cat's ass yeah. is gone if it comes down to that or the dogs. I'm just saying. For some reason, though, the cat has decided that I'm its person, which really drives me nuts because that's how cats are. They're, like, totally aloof unless they think you don't like them. And then they're like, you have to like me. And if I ever actually show the cat that I like it, which I do but I won't tell it, then it'll start being aloof again. I promise you. That's I how think, it works. I think my husband has had a similar experience with yeah. our cat. That's the way it works. Totally. Um, we've got. I know this is all kind of lighthearted, but the topic we're going to dive into today is pretty heavy. Um, we're going to have you on in the future to talk more economic stuff because that's kind of, I know, your forte at, at Bellarmine. But you're also, your other forte is national uh, security and foreign policy, um, which our current administration and, frankly, past administrations as well have made an absolute mess of. Um, I, I'm going to say, I'm going to go out on a limb here and I'm going to say that Trump was better on national security because. He was pro getting the drawdown done, but he also was just, there was just enough of a, that guy's kind of crazy to keep our enemies a little bit on their toes. What we've got now is like Neville Chamberlain part two, maybe amped up by about a thousand. You have to be looking at what's happening in Afghanistan and just shaking your head right now. I mean, I basically, and for what it's worth, I look at, pretty much all of our major political figures and especially when it comes to the war on terror from president Bush on forward and mm-hmm. just say every, everyone is terrible. Everybody sucks. In degree. <laughs> it's, it's, it's all terrible. Like it's all differences in degree yeah. as opposed to, to differences in kind. Um, what's happening in Afghanistan right now, you're absolutely right is, is tragic for a number of reasons. Um, but also frankly, totally to be expected. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that there's, Really, anybody who is looking at the situation, who's been studying what's been going on in Afghanistan, but not just Afghanistan. And this is what I think people people are really missing here. Afghanistan is an example that proves the rule that when we attempt to go in and nation build. And I know President Biden in his speech a couple of days ago was saying that the the objective goal was never, quote unquote, nation building. Mm-hmm. OK, then call it whatever reconstruction right. or exporting democracy, which has absolutely been a cornerstone of U.S. foreign policy and in particular a part of U.S. foreign policy in the war on terror, which we should expect to fail and has failed and will continue to fail when it is attempted inevitably again at some point in the future. Yeah. I actually, I feel an analogy coming on. I'm a missionary kid. Uh, my parents were missionaries to the American Indian field. And one thing that they did different than a lot of other missionaries did was they um, didn't set up on the quote-unquote missionary compound in town. They uh, became a part of the community. They raised me as part of the community. Um, I was, am still a part of that community. Don't and never thought of myself as separate from that community. Now, I'm actually building to something here. But in the past, missionaries um, have often made a huge mistake when they talk about exporting the gospel, right? They go in, and it's like, we're going to make you what we are, and then everything will be all right, as opposed to recognizing the cultural differences and 
all of that. And so what my parents set out to do was we're going to go, we're going to build a school, we're going to do good with that school, and then other people can just ask us. And if they want to make changes in their lives, then they can based on the example that we set, right? That's how I think America should export democracy. Be the example. Always stand up for human rights. Always stand up for democracy. But if you have a country that literally flat out says, we don't want it, stay away from us, get out of here, then we have no business there. And even if we do have a country that wants to emulate what we do, that doesn't mean we need to export by building their infrastructure and all that kind of stuff. It just means we have to vocalize, like, support for Hong Kong wouldn't be bad if we just said, hey, China, that's not cool, right? But we're afraid to even do that. And it's like we've we've sort of got our, our wires crossed here where we think the only way to make the world a better place is to make all of the world like another America. And that's where a lot of the leftists come in and accuse us of colonization and all those kinds of things. So it's it's an absolute mess when we when we embark on this. Yeah, so there, there are a couple of different things there. So one of the things that you touch on is a complete ignorance, willful, willful or otherwise, on the part of officials who attempt to go abroad and export, quote unquote, liberal values. Mm-hmm. Note, by the way, that they're attempting to export these values at gunpoint, which right. is um, it, it, a great irony, if you want to think about it. Um, but they tend to downplay, neglect, or otherwise ignore a variety of constraints that we face when attempting to go about intervening into a complex system. And one of those constraints that we inevitably face is an infinitely complex and evolving. That's another point too, is that these things aren't static. They change over time, historical, economic, social, religious, and other types of variables that are remarkably difficult to understand. Um, But you don't have to take my word for it on these things. Um, There was a quote that I was reading earlier today from Stanley McChrystal. 2011. Um, For people who don't remember, he was the guy who was leading the forces in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. And within this particular quote, he essentially says, uh, we didn't have enough information. We don't have enough information. We didn't appreciate uh, how difficult uh, that it was going to be in uh, Afghanistan Mm -hmm. after, after we got there. Um, the other point that you raise, which is an important one in terms of how you can go about potentially exporting, again, these these values that we purport to uphold, as opposed to taking them apart, taking them abroad militarily, is really to get your own house in order. <laughs> right. So there is so there are some very practical things that could be done. Now, these are oftentimes considered to be, quote unquote, radical policy proposals. But things in particular related to free trade. So as opposed to enacting a variety of different trade barriers that prevent us from sending goods and services across borders, allow for more trade. Mm. Countries that are isolated, take North Korea, for example, they get freaked out when goods cross their borders. Why? Because they know as soon as their citizenry gets a taste for what else is out there, (laughs) their goose is cooked. Right. So that's one thing. But the other piece, too, if people are truly honestly wanting to uh, get the you know liberal ideal out there and I say liberal in, in the classical sense not in um, not in the modern political sense 
if people really want to get that out there, the other big low-hanging fruit is to allow for more immigration. Right. Which people really don't like to talk about. But if you really want to put your money where your mouth is, that's a conversation you got to have. Well, I agree. Um, I've always taken, I, I don't know, it, it gets termed as a middle-of-the-road position on immigration, but it's not. Um, my thought is that anyone who wants to come here, be an American, assimilate, um, and what I mean by assimilate is merely espouse our views, be loyal. You know, you know what I'm talking about—the worldview that we have. That is that every man is equal uh, before the law, and that everyone has this this freedom that we have here. If you're if you buy into that, then you're welcome here. In my opinion, um, we have to know who's coming in, so we have to have secure borders. I grew up on the border with Mexico. It's an absolute mess. It's a humanitarian crisis. It's an environmental crisis. It's it's violent. It is dangerous. Uh, my father has actually run into uh, problems with cartels and that kind of thing uh, because they're, they they just don't like anything that gets in their way. That being said, that's totally separate issue from immigration itself. And I've never subscribed to this theory that I think a lot of conservatives make the mistake of subscribing to, and that is that every time an immigrant comes here and gets a job, they're taking a job from an American. If we truly believe in these sort of free market ideas, then there is no such thing as a finite economic pie. So I think you're absolutely right that one of the best ways to export democracy is to grow it, right? I mean, in that sense, I mean, it seems like that's kind of what you're what you're getting at. And I agree with that, if it is. Correct. And and we have we have really good data, frankly. So there are lots of arguments that people make against a more lax immigration policy. And frankly, when you look at the data, they just it just doesn't hold up. Right. So we look at things like disemployment effects. The only group that we really find that that is relevant for are people with less than a high school education. Right. Not to say that obviously that that's not something important to consider, but it's not as though we're seeing these massive unemployment effects as a result of immigration. Right. We do not see the things when people purport that immigrants raise crime. That's simply untrue. Um, all those types of arguments that we can look at that are typically levied, we have the data to look at that seriously. Right. And so I said, again, it's it's a really complex and complicated conversation unto itself, but definitely something that we, if we're truly interested in this, we should talk about. But we can't have that conversation, Abby, because there's only two sides anymore, right? Like that's the problem. The problem is when I say what I said, I want secure borders so we know who's coming across, when and why. And then I want pretty much anyone who is escaping communism, anyone who is escaping, um, you know, religious persecution, uh, economic persecution, those kinds of things, and wants to espouse the values of America in terms of, of, of freedom, I want them to be able to come here. There's plenty of room. When I say those two things together, both sides say you're anti-immigration on one side and you're racist. The other side says, oh, you're open borders. It couldn't be any farther from the truth, but that nuanced middle, and I hate middle ground because I'm not a middle ground person, but sometimes the truth lies there in the middle, right? We can't have that conversation because it's one side or the other. Everybody has to be red or blue anymore. I think I might make you feel a little bit better that it's not necessarily a middle ground. It's just that there is a really a tendency among both sides of the political aisle to discount 
any room right. for gray area whatsoever. Right. Right. And the fact of the matter is, is that for most policies, it's not clear black or white, and there's gray area all over the place. Mm-hmm. One of the things that we have a problem with in intervening in places like Afghanistan and places like Iraq is this tendency to look at things in a very clear black and white type of manner where everything is supposedly very, very linear. If we do this, then that will happen. There's a graphic that was used, I believe, by the U.S. military several years ago related to uh, basically constructing an economy and building a stable political system. And each one of them, it appears to be a simple linear five-step process. It reads like you're making muffins out of a cookbook. Right. Of like, oh, well, sure, like you just construct an economy and you build up a labor market and you do this and you do that. And then, wow, like you have a magical sustained democracy at the end of it, right. which is absolutely not how anything anything works. Um, and then certainly when you're talking about policies related to to war or humanitarian aid policies, there's lots and lots of gray area there um, because very, very few times are you ever looking at or intervening in a system where actors very clearly fall into camps of being completely good or completely bad. Yeah. I, and I think to kind of bring this back to, to Afghanistan, um, this is a perfect example. Like I've, I've always felt like we should have gone after Osama bin Laden. Don't have any problem with that. And you know, I, I knew of a guy in college that was a big guy. He was very friendly, but he was very big and he's very strong. And there was some little guy at a bar that was trying to mess with him and kept coming at him. And he just kind of like kept pushing him back and down on the ground. And he kept saying, dude, we can do this all day. Right. He never instigated anything. He never went any farther than that. He was just like, I can push you back down all day. We can do this all day. And our special forces basically toppled the Taliban in like two weeks. Right. I mean, it was pretty much over before it began when it came to that. The problem was we felt like we had to occupy a country and that we were responsible as opposed to saying, look, if you guys are going to let terrorists camp set up, we're going to blow the crap out of them. OK, we're going to come in there in the middle of the night and we're going to stick a knife in your throat if you've got a terrorist camp. Other than that, we got no business in there. And that's how we should have been from the beginning. But I think there were elements, especially within the Republican Party. There's some of this in the Democrats, too, but strongly uh, within the Republican Party. And um, we'll talk about a former vice president's daughter. <laughs> um Elements in that whole Bush camp that really love the military industrial complex thinks that that is the way that sort of exportation of democracy is the way saw an opportunity and and went after it. And as a result, we have this unmitigated mess that has lasted 20 years and cost thousands of American lives. Yeah, so this the nation building campaign is is truly, I think, where a lot of the major discussion now is happening. And uh, there was actually an, an op-ed, I believe it was a, a senator or a representative from Texas who talks about this idea that Afghanistan is being part of a forever war mm-hmm. or the idea that nation building was on the table is just preposterous. Um, his position is preposterous. Mm-hmm. This has been going on at this point for for, for literal decades, like yeah. Afghanistan was the opening salvo. There are there are the soldiers there are soldiers that have fought in Afghanistan that weren't born when we went in. Correct. I mean, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I was just, <laughs> I was just saying no, that's no, how long we've been no, there. You're, 
You're, so. you're absolutely correct. In, in terms of, too, like how, how this happens, and, and again, I, I always try to be, to be uh, clear to point out, because oftentimes, too, when we start talking about particularly Afghanistan, particularly about Iraq, there is a tendency to focus on the Republican Party and George Bush, who obviously bears a lot of the responsibility since his administration is the one that that kicked all of this off. Right. But that's certainly not to say that the war on terror and what it has become or what Afghanistan has become is exclusively falling on the shoulders of the Republican Party. There's a really good book that has just come out um, by Uh, Spencer Ackerman, it's called Reign of Terror. Mm -hmm. And he talks specifically about how it is that the war on terror has been both a tool of the right and the left for its own purposes. So talking about Bush, talking about Trump, talking about Obama, um, and then not so much now, just based on when the book was written, but certainly President Biden too. Um, The war on terror and the nation building, the counterterrorism efforts that have gone along with it are certainly serving the purposes of the people in political power, regardless of what side of the aisle that they're on. Yeah. When George W. Bush created the Department of Homeland Security, I warned my friends and everyone that was within the sound of my voice that this was a bad idea. Um, The goal, of course, was to blame, you know, the Clintons, which they bared some blame for separating the agencies so they couldn't talk to each other. But I never understood how a conservative or a so-called conservative could solve the problem of agencies not talking to each other by creating another agency that doesn't talk to anybody. Um, And now we look 20 years on, and now if you oppose mandates or restrictions surrounding COVID, you are now a potential terror threat to the United States. So this is what we were warning about when you have these sort of agencies, these bureaucracies that their whole sole purpose is to fight this sort of sort of boogeyman. And if they ever actually defeat that boogeyman, then they need to go away. They will constantly find other boogeyman. And eventually, as governments have always done throughout the history of mankind, they'll in some way, form or fashion turn on their own people because they have the power to do so. And it increases their power to do so. I mean, I think that's kind of one of the long ranging effects. I don't mean to go off topic here, but it feels like that's kind of where we're going to. When you talk about the right and the left, certainly there are people right now in America who would like to shut down dissent from all sides. And one way to do that is to terrify them into submission. And when you put up a graphic that says, hey, we're still worried about Middle Eastern terrorists, but we're also really worried about these people here at home that don't want to wear a mask. That's terrifying. And that is an example of where, you know, that power grows and both sides use it as a tool to continue to grow their power. So uh, we, we may have gone down a bit of a, a rabbit hole, but it just so happens that my research is at the bottom of this rabbit hole. Well, I was going to so, say, the more you get to um, know me, Abby, the more you're going to know I chase rabbits. It's what I do. I'm like a I'm like a hound dog. It's just how it works. Well, <laughs> well, let's let's go, Alice. We'll, we'll follow the white rabbit. So, <laughs> All right. So part of the research that I that I have worked on is looking at the intersection between foreign policy and domestic policy. So again, to kind of keep things within this overarching discussion of Afghanistan and the war on terror more generally, when people talk about foreign policy, there is this tendency to try to divorce it completely from what is going on domestically. So foreign policy is what's occurring in Iraq and Afghanistan and and wherever else it's it's happening. Domestic policy is what is occurring within our own geographic borders, and these two things don't cross. But what um, 
what my research shows in particular, uh, a book that I wrote with uh, my co-author Chris Coyne in 2018, what we attempt to do is we try to understand and develop a framework for understanding how it is that the tools of foreign intervention, so human capital, which we can think of just as the skill sets that people possess, physical capital. So in that case, think about things like drones or other types of surveillance equipment. Right. And then also what's referred to as administrative dynamics. So think about it in terms of the organizational structures that people who carry out foreign interventions abroad operate within. Okay. We develop a framework for trying to understand how those tools come to be integrated and used domestically. And what we've done is we've applied that framework to understanding the uh, some, some issues post-war on terror. So thinking about things related to policing and police militarization, the use of drones and surveillance, uh, the use of enhanced interrogation, i.e. torture, and, and so on. And so you're absolutely right that when we start to talk about these big changes, you mentioned the Department of Homeland Security, one of the largest restructurings in government history, uh, brought, I think, something like 22 different agencies under a singular umbrella, created a cadre of new agencies. Um, when you have those types of tools that are created, things get developed abroad, they, they can and do return and they, they are used uh, inward. Mm -hmm. My co-author and I argue that this is important for a number of reasons for individuals who are concerned with civil liberties, especially, but more generally, just that those, those tools that people think, oh, well, that's being used over there. There's no chance that they're ever going to be used in our own backyard. That's just simply untrue. Yeah. Well, and, you know, it's kind of interesting, the tactics that we've sometimes used to destabilize foreign governments that we've wanted to try to stoke revolution in, et cetera, we've actually used here at home. There's documented instances where government agents have gone in as provocateurs in the middle of, you know, so-called so peaceful protests and turned them into something else or at least tried to create the the essence of that. You mentioned drones. I mean, I think it's Baltimore that essentially almost every single inch square inch of the city is covered and surveilled by drones. Um, you know, there, there's, there's a number of different ways that the government has taken those tools that they've developed in trying to catch terrorists, so to speak, and have now turned them on us. There's uh, a new thing that's about to come out with Apple where Apple is now going to scan everyone's phone for child porn, which sounds like a great idea, right? Like I would love to catch every child pornographer in the world. The problem is that technology, as I understand it, is not fully vetted and not fully ready. Therefore, uh, we could have a lot of people getting hit with false tags and having to go through some pretty, you know, terrifying things um, to prove that they're innocent. And and all of that sort of creates this sort of upending of our justice system in a way, right? Like we're we're kind of guilty until we prove ourselves innocent in today's world in some cases because of the sort of mass surveillance state that's developed. So I, I, I'm fully on board with what you're saying, and it's it's a warning that I think we were given a long time ago with Dwight D. Eisenhower when he was exiting the White House, and he sort of warned us about allowing a sort of military-industrial complex to arise, and and we've seen that now, and this is another rabbit trail, so a warning here, but we've seen that now. We have the sort of military-corporate side that's, that's sort of melded with government, and we've also got a regular corporate side that's melding with government terms of freedom of speech and different ways that they're, um, you know, interdicting in our ability to express ourselves and 
mandating vaccines, et cetera, from the corporate side. So it's almost as if you have this weird sort of government slash private sector blob that's been created that is now kind of almost working in concert to change society. That scares me. Or am I crazy? I mean, we certainly definitely see and in my line of, of research. So um, to give people just a bit of my background, I've done a lot of work in a variety of arenas related to defense and national security broadly construed. So mm -hmm. what I mentioned earlier about foreign intervention, the domestic implications, I've done work on domestic extremism. Uh, the co-author I mentioned earlier just released another book about propaganda in democracies have written quite a bit about police militarization and written extensively on drone warfare. Right. So this is really getting at a lot of some of the, the underlying themes. And of course, the military industrial complex is one of those underlying themes. So these connections that are created between different individuals within different groups, and then frankly, how the exchanges between those different groups have strengthened over time and then the implications of that mm -hmm. um, and certainly there are lots of different things that we could talk about so people often focus on the the monetary costs so people talk about you know cost overruns whether with drones or with you know fighter planes wh whatever the case may be um, but it's not just a monetary cost as well the issues that you're bringing up related to things like civil liberties uh, are certainly a area that people can discuss, one that I think is frankly often overlooked because the, the typical pushback is that people are being alarmist mm -hmm. and that there's this assumption that there's going to be some singular event and then all of a sudden we're living underneath a garrison state. Right. But that's really a caricature of the argument that's, mm -hmm. that's being made. And one of the things that my co-author and I have written in, in our own work is that the, the argument is really not so much that it is a singular event that all of a sudden kind of turns the tide. And then again, all of a sudden we're living in a George Orwell novel. It's instead these small encroachments, um, which as you mentioned earlier, oftentimes occur under the purview of there being some kind of, of a crisis. Mm -hmm. Um, there's there's a particular economist that the book has some age on it now. Um, it's Robert Higgs, and the book is Crisis in Leviathan, mm -hmm. uh, published in 1987. And in that book, Higgs discusses the critical importance that crises play in these kind of episodic uh, moments where you see enhanced or accelerated government growth. And the basic idea, without getting too far into the weeds, is that you have some kind of a crisis that's either real or perceived. So think about something like a war, think about something like a terror attack, um, which may very well be legitimate crises. And at that particular moment, there is some call from the general population for government to, quote unquote, do something to alleviate the crisis at hand. And so as a result of that, government expands in scale and scope, but likely doesn't ever contract completely yeah it doesn't quite doesn't quite completely contract to that pre-crisis level and so i think that that's something that that we can talk about talk about too and certainly with something like afghanistan with something like the war on terror where you have this 20 year period 
Um, it's a really big, complicated issue to tackle. But we've seen that now this war on terror, especially in the war on drugs, is something similar that we can make a, uh, a, a parallel argument for as well. The crises are perpetual. Yeah. And so what at what point does does the crisis end? And then if it doesn't, what what are the implications of that? I actually a little over a year ago, I actually warned in a radio show that I did that we were now going to be in perpetual crisis mode um, along the same lines of what you're talking about. And I, I did a commentary yesterday on um, I'm going to give a little shameless plug to my flagship station, WGTK in Louisville. Uh, and I was talking about how a year ago when we warned of this loss of freedom and we said, you know, that once they take uh, power, politicians rarely ever give it back. And, you know, I was kind of making the point. I said we went from 15 days to slow the spread to serious conversations about forced vaccination. And now if you disagree with covid restrictions, you're potentially a terrorist. And I ended that commentary with the quote from Patrick Henry where he said the Constitution is not uh, not an instrument for the government to restrain the people. It's an instrument for the people to restrain the government, lest it dominate our lives and interests. To your point, um, it's a slippery slope, and we sometimes overuse that argument, and people go, that's a ridiculous slippery slope argument. But in reality, it's more like slowly turning up the heat on the frog in the frying pan, right? It doesn't notice it until it's too late, and that's kind of how I feel about what's kind of becoming of our society. And, and it's the same thing with this, bringing it all back to home to the, the conversation of Afghanistan. Most of us were in favor of going after Osama bin Laden. We were in favor of, let's go get the terrorists who got us, right? But over time, every reason for staying you know, expand and expand. And, and, and eventually we find ourselves where people weren't even thinking about the fact that we had soldiers over there dying on a weekly basis. And it was like just not even this thing that was really in the news anymore. We were we were desensitized to a two decade old war. And I and I, I think that that should be a lesson for all of us as Americans, you know, and, and maybe maybe the only silver lining to how Biden handled this because it was a complete cluster bomb but maybe the only silver white lining is it will wake us up as the people we have a responsibility to hold our government accountable to these policies and we farmed it out and we're now watching uh, an entire civilization there pay the price yeah so so to talk about afghanistan specifically and this will be one case where i will say that i i agree with president biden's decision to withdraw troops from Afghanistan. Um, there was something, I think, true of what he said in terms of, look, it has been 20 years of support, of training. If this if this won't work now, it's, it's not going to work in a year. It won't probably work in five years or if we were there for another 20 years. Um, we should have been out of Afghanistan a long time ago. Um, I'd even argue that there's a, a, a solid argument to be making that we probably never should have been there in the first place. Um, I'd, I'd certainly talk about and, and entertain that argument as well. But where I think that people have the, the largest problem right now is looking at the way in which this withdrawal has just been such a clear, unmitigated 
disaster mm-hmm. um, in that you have people who served the the ends of the U.S. government as translators or in other capacities who um, are likely to be executed mm-hmm. by the Taliban and their families are likely to be executed by the Taliban. Some already if are. They are not ev- yeah. yeah, if, if they are not evacuated. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to to leave the people that you relied on to help you, uh, when asked about this in, in other contexts, I, I told people the word that I've used is immoral. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, I'd say I that agree. it's it's ab- it's it's abhorrent mm-hmm. that, that that is how people who have been the the allies of the U.S. government have have been treated in Afghanistan. Yeah, um, I think that it, that's probably where where everybody agrees, even if they don't necessarily agree on on the withdrawal. Um, the the other point that you made though about this. Again, speaking to the, the issue, the issue of it being a perpetual conflict and people forgetting about it, it's it's not just the forgetting about it. It's the fact that people knew that this was going to be a disaster and that this was going to be the result of withdrawing from a, a very long time ago. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that I've received on a weekly basis now for several years are emails from the special inspector general of Afghan reconstruction who has been ringing alarm bells about what's been going on in Afghanistan for, for years, Mm. um, released port release reports on things like what, what do we need to learn? Like lessons from 20 years in Afghanistan or talking about weapons procurement, uh, and how it is that weapons were being likely distributed to the Taliban the entire time that we were there because we wouldn't secure our supply lines. I mean, just all of these things being a complete and utter disaster, from from the time that we that we started there well and you know i would i would argue i I believe that it was i I think actually trump had set a date for may 20th to withdraw as well i think it was definitely withdrawal was something that i think he came into office with that idea we're going to get we're going to end these wars because i think people were getting tired of it at that point and he did do a lot to wind down a lot of what we were doing in the middle east had he been reelected, he probably would be the one that was dealing with this issue right now. I'd like to hope that smarter heads in the national security team would have handled this a little bit differently. I don't know. It's a hypothetical. But I agree with you that the way this has been handled, how, how we can still have thousands of contractors and people who set out to help us um, there, stuck behind quote unquote enemy lines. And I saw a, I saw a, um, article, I think it was Bloomberg that had the headline Taliban strikes conciliatory turn at tone. And I was like, who the frick is that editor? They're hanging people right now. They're murdering people. They're going door to door, taking 12 year old girls. This is happening as we speak. Now we always knew the Taliban was probably going to come back into some, you know, level of power in the vacuum that was left behind. But it is inexcusable that we didn't have a step-by-step structure for how we were. My understanding is that we also bombed one of the airports there because we had not thought to, I guess, take all of our equipment out. And we didn't want the Taliban to get their hands on it. So we we destroyed hundreds of millions of dollars worth of American military equipment. That, to me, is just an unfathomable failure of government, which we could go down a whole other road. And I don't want to take that much time. But, my gosh, people want to turn our health care over to this this government. You know what I mean? I mean, it's like... How did this happen? Um, 
do you have any sense of optimism, Abby, that there's people in government that are going to learn from this? Do you have any sense of optimism that the American people are pissed off enough now that maybe we'll demand some changes? So in terms of optimism regarding government learning from their mistakes in Afghanistan, the answer to that question is is an unequivocal no. I have zero optimism on that front at all. And let me let me explain why. So one of the the courses that I teach um, here at Bellarmine, I've taught it at other places as well, is a course on the economics of politics. So uh, economics is a tool that we can use for understanding how it is that people make decisions and how it is that people exchange with each other and they they coordinate. Yeah. And so if, when you think about economics like that, then we can think about economics as applying in all kinds of different contexts from figuring out like where it is that you and your friends decide that you want to go to dinner to talking about issues like foreign policy. This is why how, how you wind up with somebody like me writing about drones. You're like, well, what would an economist have to say about that? Right. As it turns out, uh, a lot. Yeah. Um, so when we think about the economics of politics, we have to think about the what, what are called the institutions that political figures are operating under. Mm -hmm. So when we say institutions, we can think about it as like the rules of the game. So think about your favorite sport. So baseball, football, whatever it happens to be, there are rules, right, to each of those games. And the players who are within that particular institutional context, so baseball players, football players, whatever it might be, they're playing a particular game. Unless the rules of the game substantially change, the outcome of what the players are doing is not going to be profoundly different. Baseball is still going to look a lot like baseball. Football is still going to look like football. doesn't matter what teams that you put there on the field. Take that and translate it into something related to politics. The way that our political institutions are set up are generating the types of outcomes and policies that we are seeing. And very much in the same way that baseball doesn't change unless you change the rules, unless the rules of politics that people are operating under drastically change it doesn't matter who you have in the White House. It doesn't matter who is sitting in the Capitol building, in, in the Senate, or in the House. You're going to wind up with the same types of outcome because it's not the players that are the problem. It's the game. One of the things that we oftentimes hear individuals say is something like, well, if we just had the right people in power, this would have been better. This would have gone in this direction as opposed to that direction. And the reality of the situation is, is that that's not correct. It's not the way that we, we should think about politics, because at the end of the day, people are responding to, to incentives. So I'm not particularly optimistic in, in that front. The one place, though, that I do have some optimism um, is in individuals. And one of the things that in, in my own work, um, and in, again, the, 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 two, the two books that I've written with my co-author, one of the things that we come back to when trying to address the question of how can you put the genie back into the bottle or what is the check 
on the issues that we identify. One of the things that we come back to several times are, is, is this question related to ideology. So what is it that individuals, and if we're talking about the United States, then it's individuals in the United States, but it applies across context. What are individuals willing to accept and what are they not willing to accept? If individuals within the United States are interested in and adopt a heavy-handed militaristic ideology, then we should expect a continuation of aggressive foreign policy. But if individuals within the United States do not adopt that ideology, if they reject this militaristic standard, then I think that we can and may reasonably expect a movement away from that type of foreign policy. Because at the, at, at the basic level, what is happening in politics is constrained in at least some meaningful way by what it is that individuals are willing and able to accept. And so if you have a large segment of the American population that says, you know what, this is not the type of policy that we want, this is not something that we are okay with, that's the way that you constrain people who are in possession of political power. You cannot trust them to constrain themselves it would be like tying tying your own hands together. That's just not not something that we can reasonably expect. So not optimistic at all in one arena. Have some more optimism in in the other camp. So literally listening to you over that span of time there, I got a thousand things <laughs> I want to talk about. And I definitely think we need to have a second episode on this topic. We can do that. But the one thing I will say when you were speaking and I, everything you said, I agree with. Um, I thought of, I think it was Thomas Sewell's statement, which I've been talking about a lot lately, where he said, we have to remember that politicians don't ever try to solve their constituents' problems. They always try to solve their own problems. And... I thought of that statement when you were talking because uh, you know the what you were the substance of what you were saying when people make our desires the problem of the politician that's when the politician changes behavior that's when the game changes right I mean that's kind of what you're getting at when individuals say I've had enough of this um and we make it the politician's problem right that's when we'll get policy change but not before. And, right. I th and I think you're absolutely right. Right. And, and political actors are just like anybody else. They respond to incentives. Yes. So what are the relative cost and benefits of making decisions? Yeah. And, and I should add on to this, by the way, because sometimes when I explain this overarching idea that there is this question of the rules under which political actors are, are operating, there is this tendency for people to come back and say, well, why do you think politicians are terrible people? And to be honest with you, I, I don't think that. Um, that, what, everything that I just uh, just said a few moments ago, doesn't necessarily mean that the people who are in politics or the people who are involved in interventions abroad have some kind of nefarious intention 
when they go about engaging in these types of activities. In fact, I think for most people, they engage in these types of things because they think that it will genuinely help people. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, I think that, that that is misguided. You you mentioned Thomas Sowell a moment ago. Um, I'll mention one of my one of my favorite Thomas Sowell quotes. Um, somebody mentioned to him the idea of the road to hell being paved with good intentions, and he responded with, "Yes, it's a super highway." <laughs> um, and I think in the case of of intervention, I know, right? It's a great quip. I think in the case of the war on terror, and particularly in the case of Afghanistan, there may have been some good intentions there, but we have paved ourselves a super highway to hell, but we're not the ones driving on it. Mm-hmm. The people who ultimately at the end of the day are going to be bearing the most uh, or the heaviest consequences are the individuals in Afghanistan who the U S government came in, broke their country and in a 20 year vain attempt to put it back together, have left it worse than they found it. Well, I would, I would, I would only quibble with this. Uh, I agree we've left it worse than we found it. I disagree we broke it. I heard a really good friend of mine who's a talk show host who had a, a pretty insightful comment on how the, the the makeup of Afghanistan actually is. And he said one of the things that we've misunderstood there, you know, when Biden said, hey, um, these people won't even fight for their own country. Why should we fight for them? And there, there's some truth in that, right? There's absolutely some truth in that. But that's a fundamental misunderstanding of the culture of Afghanistan. And my friend Ross Kaminsky, he's a show host in Denver, who I'm going to introduce you to because I think you guys would really hit it off, and I think you'd be great on his show as well. Um, but what he said was, you know, it's it's tribal, not national in Afghanistan. And that's one of those fundamental cultural failures that you and I were sort of talking about at the very beginning. It's not that the country was broke, it, it, in that it just was never really a country. It was an an assimilation of tribes or an assembling of tribes, so to speak, in a very loose way that there's not a sense of national pride amongst Afghans in Afghanistan. Their pride tends to go towards their tribe or their clan. It's the culture there. And for us to come in and think, hey, we're going to set up a democracy and you guys are going to have states and those states are going to govern themselves and they're going to have a constitution. That's not a concept they have any interest in in the same way that we do. You know what I mean? Um, but I do agree that we left it worse than it was to begin with because because now instead of those various different groups being able to break off and live however they see fit in their own communities, we're going to have a totalitarian regime that's going to, you know, lord over and oppress them all. So Right, and I I think the the, the point about the uh allegiances to 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 the tribes or to, you know, relevant clans is is a relevant one so there are a couple things that i i would say to to augment that um there was i was talking to somebody about afghanistan who i think put it in a way that just put a really fine point on it which was if afghanistan was a fedex package (laughs) that you were trying to send across the country they would have broken it within the first leg of the trip right and i think that that is not an unfair characterization of what what you were dealing with. Um, but you're absolutely right that there is a massive coordination problem. And this gets back to what we were talking about earlier about just the the hubris mm-hmm. required to think that you could go in and that you could establish 
anything that looks like a Western democracy there. Right. Um, a, a friend of mine, he's a, a U.S. Marine stationed in Afghanistan, uh, uh, I believe twice. And he he says to me that he had people who lived next door to each other that would not talk to their neighbors right. because they were not members of, of the same of the same tribe. Yeah. And so that's that's the kind of thing that you're you're working with. When we look at things like stability, and, and one of the pieces of, of research that I've done quite a bit on that's Afghanistan specific, and one thing that, that we haven't discussed, maybe next time this would be something we could dig into more, um, people are ignoring right now the impact of U.S. drug policy as it pertains to counterterrorism oh, yeah. policy. Oh, we've got to do a and whole so, episode on that. You're just the, opening up a can of worms. <laughs> Well, so I'll, I'll tease it. I'll tease you. I'll tease it a little bit. Okay. Um, so what my my co-authors and I effectively did was we we looked at the different phases of U.S. counterterrorism policy in Afghanistan as they related to to drug policy. So for for people who don't know, Afghanistan currently produces the U.N. estimates between 80 to 90 percent of the global opium poppy supply. Right, right. In 2001, before the U.S. invaded, they produced almost nothing. Hmm. And so wow. what we what we look to do is we, we look at these different phases that the U.S. government implemented in, I believe, the first like 12 to 14 years of, of the invasion. And we talk about how that uh, that policy contributed to a fueling the the Taliban because it effectively gave them a right. very lucrative income source, but then also too had a variety of different consequences that effectively undermined the stability of the Afghan of the Afghan government that the US was trying to support. Right. But then also too undercut support in in a broad sense among among the populace. Hmm. Um, and so there are a few different things that we looked at with respect to that. So there are a lot of different layers here. Yeah. Yeah. that are are coming into play and i have every confidence that there will be people who will be analyzing this situation in afghanistan probably long after um i have retired and probably long after i'm dead <laughs> right so. well you know russia was unable to uh invade and win and hold and i don't know why we thought that that was something that we could do um in the process again i i personally have no problem with the decision to take out bin laden to do whatever it took to take out those terrorist camps. But I love the word hubris that we always think that everyone else wants what we want and that everyone else automatically sees the world through the viewpoint that we have. And that simply isn't the case, um, which again, you know, if you want to go full circle brings us back to, Hey, anyone in Afghanistan who does view the world the way we do get your butt over here. We got a spot for you. You know what I mean? I mean that's I I'm, that's the way I look I mean, at it. I so. I would absolutely adopt that policy yeah. of you I know, I don't people, know if you people who want to be here be are here. You, are you familiar with Black Rifle Coffee? Uh, I am not. Um, it's Evan Hafer. He's the founder of it. He's a former Green Beret. He fought in Afghanistan, and um, he came back and started a coffee company that gives to wounded veterans. Basically, they give a portion of their profits to wounded veterans. And one of the things that they did. Uh, when they came back and got their company up, and it's hugely popular, especially among you know conservative right. But 
Um, I and, and I freaking love their coffee. But one of the things he did was he went and got a bunch of those interpreters, those guys, the Afghans that had fought with the Americans, that had fought with them, a bunch of the ones that they had fought side by side with, brought them to America, made sure they had housing, gave them jobs within his company. And, you know, he was talking on Joe Rogan's podcast about this just recently, and it was a fantastic episode. Um, I'd love to hear his now thoughts, you know, because a lot of those guys that he was with uh, are now going to be dead. And, you know, he was he was actively involved in, in trying to get them over here. And it's just, yeah, oh man, we've, we're going to go down a rabbit hole again. OK, listen, we got to do two more episodes on this because we definitely have to do the drug thing as well. Uh, but we also have to do uh, an episode on economic development in Eastern Kentucky. So I've really enjoyed this conversation, Abby. Um, before I let you go, though, what are the titles of your books and where can people get them? Because even if people didn't agree with everything you said today, you have done an enormous amount to provoke thought. And I hope introspection on these issues. And I want people to read your work because I think it's important. Oh, well- well, thank you. So the the two books in question uh, are 2018 books. So both are with the same co-author. Uh, is titled Tyranny Comes Home, mm-hmm. The Domestic Fate of U.S. Militarism. Yeah, I'm actually going to order then, that one today if I can get it on Amazon. Well, you can. Okay. Um, so both of these are available on Amazon. Okay. Um, the second book, which just came out actually earlier this month, uh, is titled Manufacturing Militarism, U.S. Government Propaganda in the War on Terror. Uh, both of those are available on Amazon. They are published through Stanford University Press. Uh, if people are interested in finding links to both of those uh, relatively close together, or they are interested in looking up, say, the paper about Afghan drug policy and so on, um, probably the easiest way for them to find me. Uh, if people want to get in touch with me, I am online at abigailrhall.com. I also have a very similar Twitter handle uh, where people can uh, feel free to reach out there as well. Awesome. Thank you so much. And I look forward to our next episode. It's going to be fun. I really enjoyed it. Thanks so much, Leland. All right. I really enjoyed talking to Abby Hall. And I'm telling you, we're going to hear a lot more from her. Um, As you know, I'm a libertarian thinking, uh, independent conservative. And I am fascinated by some of the ways that we have made big government from the right. And uh, we're going to explore some of these topics with her in a much more detailed way. She's done an enormous amount of research. She is Uh, a credible academic, and we're going to definitely dive into that. But I do want to thank you for listening to the program. Make sure to tune in for future episodes. Louisville Cabinets and Countertops sponsors us, and we are so proud to have them as a sponsor. I won't take on a business I don't believe in. I believe in these guys. I have been a customer of theirs for years. If you're thinking about remodeling your kitchen, this is the way to go. It's LouisvilleCabinetsandCountertops.com. George, Michelle, Kelly, all standing by to take your call and help you be, uh, to, to, to achieve that dream kitchen. Whether it's a turnkey remodel or you're a do-it-yourselfer, they have cabinets in stock that are ready to go, or they can do the whole custom thing. Whichever it is that you need, whatever type of countertop surface you're looking for, from laminate that's ready to cut today, to granite, to quartz, to other types of hardstone, they can help you. Louisville Cabinets and Countertops, 502-930-3304 or LouisvilleCabinetsandCountertops.com. Big thanks to uh, Dynamics Productions for uh, helping us with the audio in this program. And especially a big thanks to you for the thousands of downloads. Please help us continue to grow by sharing it with your friends. It's a free uh, subscription. If you're listening online, I highly recommend you go to iHeartRadio 
Apple Podcasts or Google Play and subscribe for free because then new episodes are delivered straight to your phone. So you never have to worry about uh, checking the website. It's always going to come right to you. Thanks again for listening. I am Leland Conway. Follow me on Instagram. It's at Greatly Londo and at The Disruption Zone. And on Twitter, it's at Leland Show and at Zone Disruption. The Disruption Zone. (laughs) 